1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Scott Harrell, Dr. Harrell, who is Professor of Systematic Theology here at Dallas Seminary. We've been colleagues a long time, and he's a veteran of foreign wars here on the table. We've had him for many different topics. And today we're discussing the Nicene Creed, and in particular we're looking at the part of the confession that deals with the Son, and particularly the person of the Son. We will be dealing with the works of the Son later. So let me read this part of the Creed, and then we're literally going to go through it kind of a line at a time and in the one Lord Jesus Christ. So that note, before we even start, that begins and assumes the very beginning of the Creed. We believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Those are how those two kind of attach to each other Um, because in the Creed, the confession of the one God, of course, extends to the Father, Son, and Spirit. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, uh, and then the transition towards the, uh, his work, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation, and then we get into the list of his um, things that were related to his incarnation. So uh, that's the first half of the creed. If you look at the creed, um, the discussion of the Father is very short. The discussion of the Spirit and all other things is relatively short, but the discussion of the Son is quite long. And of course, this tells us the background of the creed. So Scott, my opening question for you is, um, let's talk about the background of the creed, what it's dealing with, and why this middle section of the creed is so long. Well, you have a long story – a long history, excuse me,
2: of – from Scripture, what even in the first century was beginning to happen in the church. Mm -hmm. So you have some who were Jews who uh, wanted to believe that Joseph was Jesus' actual father. The Ebionites, they are called. Mm -hmm. They seem perhaps to be aligned with the Essenes, uh, a very aesthetic, separatist kind of a group. With the destruction of Jerusalem, and we don't know much about them, but they scattered. There weren't many to begin with, but probably into uh, the upper Nile, southern Egypt, or mm-hmm. middle Egypt, as we'd say today. And uh, so they believed that Jesus was essentially a man mm. and, and a good prophet like John the Baptist, one to be revered, but not one to be worshiped. Mm-hmm. So you have that extreme over here. And yet on the other side, you have the docetic element beginning to enter in. These are the ones who wanted to believe that uh, Jesus, this is a good Greek and Roman kind of idea, Jesus is an emanation of God. So God's the the other, uh, un, uh, undescribable, uh, transcendent, ineffable uh, God of sorts up there, and that this God uh, uh, then works into or emanates down into this world. This world is contrary to God. The material world is evil. So it is the rational mind and all the rest that is, uh, that is uh, uh, true uh, to what God is. And so Jesus was interpreted within that framework, as you well know, uh, as a, 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 a kind of vision of God, a, 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 a uh, one that was uh, not entirely human. Indeed, uh, this one who walked as a ghost would walk on the on the, on the sand and leave no footprints. This one who was, in a sense, a God, not the God by any means, uh, emanation of God, yet not truly man. So all human or divine but not man on the two sides. And as we walk through church history, those were easy to get rid of, but we come to Marcionism and other other beliefs, that was a docetic belief, uh, where you have some that want to say that, that Jesus was a good man in Nazareth and so good that God adopted him as Lord of the Church. There were others that said, no, that's not good enough. We, we think that uh, God is one person. They want to protect, uh, protect the monarchy of God, the unity of God. You have those who see God adopting as one form of that. But another form is to say, well, God is one God, one person, but, but manifests himself in different ways. Father sometimes, the Son sometimes, the Holy Spirit sometimes. And that developed a little bit more. Sabellianism is where God is the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Gospels, and then the Holy Spirit as we hit Pentecost and move forward in history. So God's in this kind of migration, but God is Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, not as three persons, but but manifestations are masks. And then finally, the really big question, as you know, mm-hmm. you may have been asking this all along, <laughs> <laughs> and that is Arius. Uh-huh. Arius, an elder in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Yet Arius was saying that, that the Son was the first creation of God, mm-hmm. the highest through whom uh, God created everything else, but that he is a creation and not the same substance as God, not equally God as the Father, but a God, so to speak. And it is in that context, Arianism beginning to grow, and the church not always clear on these things, versus Alexander of Alexandria and his younger, younger sidekick Athanasius, mm-hmm. and they, uh, they were saying this cannot be that that, that uh, following Origin in part, uh, the Son has always been and is in fact eternally begotten of the Father. So it is in this context, Constantine had conquered the Western Empire, had moved, and finally, in in 324, conquered. What he named humbly Constantinople mm-hmm. after himself.
1: <laughs> and we all should get the opportunity to do this,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a Horal Stadium no, somewhere in California. <laughs> I'm right. proud of that, but
1: uh, <laughs> a relative or something. <laughs> there, you <like> that. <laughs> there you go. There uh, you go.
2: But uh, Constantine seems to have converted under Hosius, uh, a, a, a Spanish bishop, and uh, and and had Hosius kind of traveling with him. And as they went through Rome and then finally conquered the Eastern Empire as well, he put Hosius in charge of resolving this tension between Arianism and really what we would call classical, now Trinitarianism, because the rift was fairly significant and Constantine himself wanted to bring unity to the church. Mm -hmm. So in 325, through Hosius, he called a a uh, a first ever, this comes after the persecutions of others, now Constantine sympathetic to Christianity, first ever uh, really reunion of the leaders of the church to determine what do we believe and what we do not believe. Hmm. And so Arius was present, as was Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius, and so this creed uh, is partially hammered out in 325. Mm-hmm. Now, what we're reading is the creed, as you well know, right. goes beyond that because this is really a 381 uh, revision of the original 325 Creed. Perhaps a little more background here would be helpful. Okay. Well, you're, go- you're on a roll, so I'm going to Well, not I, I don't mean you. to be. Uh, <laughs> but, but Arianism, though it was uh, anathematized in the 325 Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. Arius had a, a pernicious way of creeping back into the kingdom uh-huh. and even persuaded Constantine himself mm-hmm. toward an Arian view uh, after the Edict of Nicaea, which was clearly Trinitarian. And so, over the next several decades, we have emperors calling the shots on what is to be Christian doctrine. And so, in some ways, Arius would be put into a, a position, or others who were Arian in their perspective, or then regular Trinitarians, Nicene Trinitarians, would be put in place. And you saw this oscillation back and forth as some were beginning to ask, why are the emperors telling us what to believe as a church? <laughs> yeah. So you have Hilary Potier, uh, in 365 writing a book on the Trinity in the West. Mm-hmm. And in the East, you have uh, what are called the Cappadocians, uh, Gregory, uh, excuse me, uh, Basil of Caesarea, who was a little bit older, Bishop of a Caesarea in Asia Minor, by the way, not not what we usually think of on, mm-hmm. the, on the Mediterranean coast. And then his... Friend Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil's little brother Gregory of Nyssa, and these were working through also the place of the Holy Spirit, and with Athanasius, who was still alive during this time, working out to say East and West can come together around these terms that have between Latin and Greek proved a little problematic, mm-hmm. and saying we're really saying the same thing. If we understand what East and West
1: are meaning by the Greek and Latin words they're using, so part of the issue here was linguistic and the linguistic differences between the two languages, and getting that sorted out and understood. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, so by three eighty one, there was another council. Uh, Gregory Nazianzus presided over at least the first part of that council, and that's. That's what hammered out what we call now the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. which is in fact the Nicene Cosmopolitan
1: Creed. Kind that's of a tongue right. twister there. That's so. right. Yeah, we just call it NC for short. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. But, uh, well, uh, thank you for the overview there. I kind of got a nice spectrum of what the options are running through the century. So, this is actually, in one sense, the culmination of a multi century conversation that's happening in the early church in which different ways. Ways of trying to configure the relationship of the Father and the Son, and ultimately the Spirit, are being articulated and trying to come to a common language about how to, how, one, how to express that, and two, how to think about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I see is right from Scripture. There, there are two primary tracks. One orients around John 1, mm-hmm. the prologue, and a Logos Christology, Right, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. But then you have the baptismal formula as well of the right. end of Matthew, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the church was dealing with both uh, tracks and trying to put it together. Typically that baptismal formula, as you well know, mm-hmm. uh, became the framework of with Justin Martyr and with early editions of what we call the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, trying to explain the Christian faith in light of that baptismal formula. So as early as 150, we see both the Greek and shortly later the Latin first and then Greek uh, versions of that Apostles' Creed, and the church is working toward the language that encapsulates that, uh, what Scripture is really teaching.
1: Yeah, the, and, and the easy way to think about this, because this is not easy thinking that you have to do, is um, to remember that Christianity emerged out of a Jewish background. It was absolutely committed to monotheism. Mm, yes. There is only one God. But when religious rites are performed in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and you believe in one God, that is pushing you in a certain direction in terms of how you understand uh, who God is, because that, that, yeah. is a, uh, that is a divine category, if you will, of authority that's being evoked as you engage in these rites in the name of or in the authority of mm-hmm. um, this person whom you're appealing to. And, and so that kind of introduces the issue at one level, a very practical level, where you go, all right, we confess one God. We do. We perform religious rites in His name and out of His authority, and so if that's in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, then we know which side of the of the divine human line or the divine creature line we're operating on. That's one dimension mm-hmm. of it, and then the other one that also was alluded to in the in the creed is the line between Creator and creature. So you've got the The line tied to rites that and to uh, liturgy, for lack of a better term, that you've got, and then you've got these lines tied to the association with creation. Thus, the appeal to John one, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, the Word became flesh, with all the background Mm -hmm. that that has, and that is deeply rooted in. The Logos theology is deeply rooted in Jewish uh, language and expectation um, that, that fuels into this so that we get this phrase, and this is an echo actually of 1 Corinthians 8, and I'm looking at it, that we believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ is an echo directly from 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, where we get a mini form of this what I call Benetarian confession there. Uh, where you get the mention of the Father and the Son explicitly. And you would argue that goes back to the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 4. Exactly correct. It, it's rooted very much in the language of the Shema. So this is the great uh, monotheistic confession of Judaism, repeated in the synagogues from week to week, still repeated mm-hmm. today. Um, and, and so when Paul takes this language and, in effect, splits it up between the God of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ, um, he is making an affirmation as he says, you know, there are many gods and many lords in the world, but for us, there is one God and one Lord, and he puts the Father and the Son in that category. So that's kind of the background that we're, that we're dealing with here. And um, Arius' problem was he had a high view of Jesus, it just hadn't promoted him quite high enough. Fair enough Fair enough
2: I, I'm recalling a, probably six hours of conversation I had with someone who called the seminary and wanted to talk to me. Uh-huh. Uh, he would not give me his name, but he was someone in the Jehovah Witness hierarchy. okay kept insisting that no he's like God. Uh-huh. He looks like God, but the essence of his attributes are not innate to himself. Mm-hmm. They are given by the Father. He is a God but not the God. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a common problem, uh, and the idea of thinking through who, who Jesus is and what he's about is is an important part, obviously. In fact, it's a core part of of what makes Christianity Christianity, and it's also, because of the centrality of the role of this figure as the Redeemer, uh, part of what makes Christianity a very unique uh, expression, not just of religion in general, but of monotheism in particular. So... There's an interesting survey. You've heard of the LifeWay Ligonier
2: Ministries survey uh, in the general public, but this comes from about 3,000 evangelicals, and it was updated last September, at least as it was published in Christianity Today. And quite surprisingly, among professing evangelicals, 71% say, quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God whoops 71%. Even though a little little disconnect here, they believe in the trinity that god is one god in three persons. Yes, yes. So 97% say that, but whoops is right. <laughs> and um and regarding the Holy Spirit, too, that he's basically a force, not a person. Mm-hmm. So uh, huge numbers there as well. So this is uh, this is not something merely remote to groups that uh, would not call themselves classic Christians. This is very dear to our own churches.
1: Yes, and it's actually part of the one of the reasons why we decided to do a series on the Nicene Creed and talk in some detail about what is going on here, because um, most people don't don't quite have this aligned uh, properly in terms of thinking through what it is theologically. Well let's let's begin to go through this a line at a time and we'll uh, kind of unpack what we have here and work on some of the detail. So it says it's a strange way to begin. Though, this is a sentence that begins with a capital "and" in my in my in the version that I'm reading here, and and you know you normally don't hear a sentence that begins "and" in one Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's something hanging, there. and so obviously we're going back to the line that opens up the creed: we believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ, and then we get. Mm-hmm. God almost like an echo through the confession of Jesus just to make clear what we don't mean when we're making this distinction, which is we aren't attempting to separate Jesus from God, we're explaining Jesus' relationship to God, so we get the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, God from God so that that's the that's closing that loophole in many ways and then two lines later it says true God from true God just in case you didn't get it um, so so this confession is very clearly saying Jesus Christ is God and yet it uses the title Lord which is interesting so let's talk a little bit about what's going on there what uh, what's um, this? Stepping in to make clear that Jesus is God on the one hand, but using the title Lord for Jesus. What's what's happening with that juxtaposition? Well,
2: mind? you would know as well, Darrell. But uh, for those who uh, uh, are are listening in, Lord is uh, kurios is the term that translates both Jehovah or Yahweh of the Old Testament, but also another term Adonai of the Old Testament. Kurios translates both of them. Yahweh is used over six thousand times, and and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Kyrios is used for God over six thousand times mm-hmm. as well. So when it can be used in other ways, I mean, we talk about Lord Chesterton or something like that. Right. So it had other meanings, but when you're speaking of the Lord, uh, that's a very different reality. So over and in, over again, uh, over and over again, you uh, you have this confession that Jesus is. Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems that Jesus is included then in that one Godness of God, and to, to glorify the Son is to glorify the Father, as mm. Jesus well put it in John five and and John six. So the one Lord Jesus Christ is not a stepping away from this one God or from the Father uh, as uh, fully God. It is rather saying. The Son participates in that godness, and we confess that as well, as Thomas, my Lord and my God. Yes. Confession in John 20.
1: So this title is is huge. Its, it's background comes from Psalm 110, and, I, and I, we normally don't get pretty tech, very technical on the podcast, but I'm going to take some time to do yeah. this here. Um, because in Psalm one ten one, if we were to read the Hebrew and translate it very, very precisely, we would have... Yahweh said to my Adoni, to, mm-hmm. to, to my Lord, and the, and the distinction between the addresser and the addressee is pretty clear in that opening line. But what produced uh, uh, the Septuagintal translation was this tendency in Judaism to shy away from the personal name of God and to put a circumlocution in there to, to avoid pronouncing the divine name so that even when this got translated into Greek, it, it has the Lord said to my Lord, this double use of kurios, which tightens the association in some ways, and also makes the point contextually. We're talking about someone being addressed to sit with God in heaven, uh, and when you do that, who gets to share the throne of God, who gets to share the glory of God, Etc. boom, all mm. of a sudden you're into a new context conception and a fresh conception about the relationship between these two two beings and this is a text that Jesus himself appeals to
2: and stumps the Pharisees <laughs> entirely, entirely right. how could david say that uh, his son would be his kurios mm-hmm. his lord
1: yeah, in in a patriarchal world in which all the honor goes to the ancestor as opposed to the descendant, how is it that the great 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 grandson—I may not have had enough greats in there—you know—could get the honor? And and so that's what you're dealing with as you as you deal with this text. So this this and then there are other texts. Um, Joel 2 perhaps being a famous example where the appeal is, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved um, using this title there. Clearly, if you're Jewish, you're thinking about what we're calling on the God of Israel. But mm-hmm. in the early church in the speech in Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter has a play on this in which he introduces this passage, but then later on has people calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and getting baptized in the name and the authority of Jesus at the end of that speech. Again, showing this this liturgical connection and the authority of God with with uh, with um, with the person of Jesus, and making these links that the the creed is designed to
0: to underscore. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast.
2: I think it's fascinating what's happening in 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 actually modern Judaism in some of the rabbinic studies mm-hmm. uh debated of course among Jews themselves, but Benjamin Summer, a Cambridge University press book, The Bodies of God, argues that God does proliferate. he can appear in more than one way, maybe even at the same time, and that and he's a leading rabbinic scholar uh, in Chicago. he would argue that the doctrine of the Trinity was Is not inconceivable. In fact, it
1: rather makes sense within intratestamental Judaism. I like to tell students, you know, that this background, these texts that we're talking about, that we're going to allude to here in a second, they aren't inspired, but they do reflect the way people are thinking Mm. about God at the time uh, around the time of Jesus. So we have, I mean the, the key text that the New Testament, of course plays with is a canonical text. That's the Daniel 7 text. That's the Son of Man who rides the clouds, comes to the ancient of days, receives judgment authority. and of course, in the Old Testament, the only figures who yeah. ride clouds are deities. So you've, mm-hmm. you've got this human you've got this human being doing divine, divine stuff. And so that's, that's part of what's going on in Daniel 7. But out of that came a, some reflection in Judaism. In a text like First Enoch, which um, um, mm-hmm. is is discussed as to when it was written, but um, I've edited a book with James Charlesworth on the similitudes of Enoch, which we argued that this was a work that was written somewhere between the late first century BC and early first century a d um, Jim actually believes that he that its origins are in Galilee, which is even more interesting uh, because then it's floating mm-hmm. around in the very area where Jesus ministered, and so so you've and it has this Son of Man figure who's a very clearly uh, second authority in heaven, participates in the judgment, sits with God, is preexistent. I mean, just got it's got all these traits um, so that so that we see this reflection on Daniel 7 in Enoch that is pointing to a very emerging and developing concept of this associative power. We're not saying that Christianity took this idea, but we are saying that there are ideas like this Mm -hmm. around at the time That uh, so that when Jesus says it, he's not stepping into kind of completely unoccupied space. He's he's working with conceptions that are around. I think another rabbinic scholar, Daniel Boyarin, would say that all more strongly.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, both Benjamin Summers and Daniel Boyarin are 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 Jews Mm -hmm. uh, and scholars of Judaism. They do not confess Jesus. They do not believe that he is the Messiah. But Boyarin goes further, even to say that the idea of Trinity was in the not per se, but the idea that God could could also take form be be even human, was in the, the mixture of many different views of, of what this coming Messiah might be like. I mean, we quote at Christmas all the time, Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is given, a son is born, uh, and, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, El Gibor, Mighty God is only used one other time in the Old Testament in that exact phrase. That's a chapter later, and it is absolutely Yahweh, Mm -hmm. Jehovah God. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of things, as you well know, the Jews were struggling with. And so as we come to one Lord Jesus Christ and Son of God, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and and of course the sonship gets into the way in which the father and son relate Mm -hmm. to one another functionally. Um, and uh, and so we often see portraits in the Gospels where Jesus describes himself as responding to the Father. He's sent by the Father, it's the language is all through John. Um, he does what the Father says, so, so we see this responsiveness that the Son has to the Father, that's the way they're relating to each other. Um, but there, uh, you also get Jesus saying things like, you know, before Abraham was, I am, which is an appeal to the divine name. And he's attaching to himself that that the Jews who heard that weren't too excited about the fact that Jesus <laughs> said that. <laughs> they did react, and so um, so there are these whole series of texts that are pointing to the fact that that Jesus sees himself in these terms, and this Psalm 110 text, which started this conversation, is important because as we said, the picture is, at least in the way Jesus is using it, is of – he's describing uh, during his trial, in effect, he's saying to them, "Look, you may execute me, you may crucify me, mm-hmm. but God's going to vindicate me, and that vindication is going to involve my resurrection to His side. This is something He's going to do. So, if you've got a beef with this, you need to take it up with the divine complaints yeah. department and 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 mm-hmm. and God Himself. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me at www.righthandofgod.com. Uh, I'm alive by the by the power of God. God, and that's going to be the vindication, and oh, by the way, God is kind of, you may think you're a judge, but God's a judge in his own right, and this is not a good thing that you're getting ready to do. There are all kinds of things that are wrapped up in what Jesus is saying that points to his authority, and the empty tomb, of course, is god what I like to call, it's it's God's vote in the dispute between the Jewish leadership and Jesus.
2: You know, I hear uh, a lot of times uh, people say, Muslims say this all the time, and many others do too, Jesus never called himself God. And I, th- I think it's a fascinating question to, to stop and think about. Mm-hmm. What if he had? Mm-hmm. What if he'd gone around, and he did, but mm-hmm. I'll get back to that in a minute. What if he'd gone around saying, I'm God, and even proving it with majestic miracles and, and as the Gnostic Gospels, making toast of anyone who disagreed? Mm-hmm. What kind of faith would that evoke? What kind of belief from the heart and trust would that be? I find it I find it fascinating that the times Jesus did make clear who he was uh, was in the teeth of those who already wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, John 8, 58. Mm-hmm. Uh, before Abraham was I am, there'd been a full chapter and more of debate, and that's on the that's in the temple courts mm-hmm. in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. And then again in john 10 it's again in the temple courts in jerusalem epicenter of judaism and i and the father are one and again they wanted to kill him you being a man make yourself out to be god and he could have diffused it said no you don't understand Uh, i'm just kind of one with god in a a general way but he let the strongest sense in fact he explained it later didn't he stand Mm -hmm. but the other time before the resurrection Is there in the trial? And I think the Matthean account I find most fascinating because you have the high priest saying, By the living God, I adjure you, are you the Son of God?
1: That's right.
2: And that Son of God, of course, has multiple meanings in both Old and New Testament. But then Jesus quotes Daniel 7, as you've been saying. Mm -hmm. And so he connects Son of God with the title Son of Man, a divine title. And in a sense, it is the highest meaning of both phrases, "Son of God," "Son of Man." That is who I am, and that is why they went wild, tore their why well, his expensive robe, no doubt, yeah. and the others uh, simply went crazy. They yeah, had to call the tailors Taylor.
1: afterwards to oh, fix oh, at it. At least, <laughs> and well, that was the beginning <laughs> of the end. That's right, and you know this combination of Daniel seven and Psalm one ten that's wrapped up in that answer um, is designed to to really drive home the point. You've got this human figure riding the clouds, something that only God yeah. does, and then you've got this a picture of this um, – coronation's probably not the right word, but certainly this investiture, if I can say it that way, that you've got this seating on a throne uh, with, with God, and, and, and that juxtaposition leaves no doubt about what Jesus is saying. And I like to say when you read the Gospels that – you know, we give the Pharisees a hard time, but actually they're pretty theologically astute. When Jesus makes a remark, sometimes they get it and the rest of the audience doesn't. They don't believe it, but they get it. They understand what Jesus is saying um, and and react to it as a result. So sometimes they're actually the mm-hmm. the clue as to the point of what it is that Jesus is making in, in their reaction, mm. and that certainly happens nice. here. So. Uh, And then there's another point that comes alongside this that I think is pretty important that is something that's happened in New Testament studies recently, at least in the last uh, four or five decades, that I think is important because there are these great searches for what Jesus says, you know, does he speak of himself directly as God, those kinds of things. But there are a whole raft of things that Jesus does that's designed to show who he Mm -hmm. is. And so Jesus is kind of a show and tell guy. He he, um, you know, sometimes he talks less and demonstrates more, and that's that's what you're getting. So he does things like forgive sins, he uh, calms the winds and the waves, and they worship him. And they worship him. That's right. Um, he um, here's one that I that this is one of my favorites because it's subtle. He takes the Lord's he takes the Passover, an established liturgy of the Torah. And totally changes its significance. Hmm. Who has the authority to mess with the Pentateuch like that? And Uh, Passover. That's exactly right. Uh, Yeah. So so that's that's another mm -hmm. one of of the Mm -hmm. of the same kind. So you've got these actions that Jesus performs. That's designed. You know, he's the one who who talks about the Son of Man being Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is no minor day in the Jewish calendar. It's it's another Torah rooted. Creation tied, uh, God God ordained day. So, you know, so who has the right to mess with the Sabbath? Mm -hmm. Um, Though, and and Jesus is raising those kinds of questions consistently. He plays with how purity works. Um, Those, so all these things are designed to give people pause and demonstrate who. Um Jesus is, so much so that when he performs miracles, he can say things like, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And of course, he's talking about his own authority as he's doing this, his mm-hmm. authority. Who has authority over those spiritual beings? So there's a whole raft of things that are going on. Well, we could talk all day about this part of the Christology, but there are other parts of the creed to to kind of unfurl here. Let's, let's go back. We've covered one Lord Jesus Christ. We've kind of alluded to the Son of God through the picture of these passages. And now we come to the phrase that's probably extremely important because it's actually mentioned twice, begotten from the Father before all ages, and then it goes God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made. So I think they're trying to make a point there. <laughs> uh, so so let's talk about this begotten thing. In fact, he goes on and says, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. This is putting Jesus on the Creator side of the Creator-creature divide. That's for sure. Um, uh, but let's talk about this term begotten, because some people say begotten, and well, isn't that born I mean aren't we talking about the well, that's why it says
2: begotten not made
1: uh, <laughs> uh, well yeah. there's been a lot of
2: debate around this over the last uh, well 50 60 65 years uh-huh. Dale Moody and others uh, some have said well mono genos uh, one of a kind so genos is not genao, which means born. This can be a little confusing because the two words are sometimes very close together, like in John 1, 13 and 14. But some have said it's not begotten. It simply means one of a kind. So most of our modern translations don't use begotten anymore. A few do, uh, but use one of a kind. Unique. Unique. Okay. Or one okay. or only. Right. Uh Genao, which is two ends instead of one, genos is G-E-N-O-S, and genao is the verb, uh, G-E-N-N-A-O, uh, means to be born, and many have said they're not the same word, so this doesn't mean only begotten, it only means one of a kind. Some have tried to say, well, this part of the creed is not even correct. It is a, a misappropriation of biblical language. But a lot of research has been done really in the last several years again to say, but wait a minute, genos and genao may be coming back to the same Indo European root, the gen, which mm-hmm. uh, comes out of the idea of a descendancy. And when we see monogenos, or uh, that word one and only, usually, even in Luke, for example, four times it applies to, to a son, or three times to, uh, two times to a son, once to a daughter seems very often to be used of, uh, of offspring. And so I've always said that the Greek fathers could speak Greek better than we can. Uh, <laughs> and, and they, they didn't Imagine conflate that. the two, mm-hmm. but rather they saw one implying the other very strongly. So to be the one and only son of God means you're the one and only uh, in a way generated by God, but not in time. Origen rather brilliantly said, Well, we think in human terms. A father comes before a son. But when we speak of this one who in the beginning was with God and is God, or was God in John 1 1, uh, we have to be talking about analogy here. And so when we speak of the begottenness of the son, we talk about eternal begottenness, as, as the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed says eternally begotten and not made. Not made, Tough way to get your mind around it, because we don't think that way, but but it is the distinguishing aspect in classical Christian faith between the Father, who is the unoriginated origin, Mm -hmm. and the Son, who is the eternally begotten one, and later with this creed came the idea of the the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father, if not also the Son.
1: So, so the picture here is of uh, an, an eternal relationship. I, I like the phrase "begotten, not made," because it's what it's, it's underscoring beautiful. is: is this is not we're not talking about a creature. You know, we're not talking about someone who at some point did not exist. Um, that he is, and and then thinking Jewishly again he's on the creator side of the creator-creature divide, mm-hmm. that immediately puts him into the category of deity. Mm-hmm. And so, so all that is at work. The, another passage that I think is important here is um, is is in Psalm 89. It's Psalm 89, 27, where the term firstborn comes up uh, and gets associated with this terminology. I will appoint him to be my firstborn son, the most exalted of the earth's kings, and what that Juxtaposition, of course, does is it highlights the fact that we're talking about a primacy here and a un- at the same time a uniqueness as opposed to a biological use of of mm-hmm. the language of, of born um, uh, and of course the firstborn in in Judaism had this primacy in the family in terms of inheritance and res- and family responsibilities, the passing on of the family, um, th- those kinds of things. And so it lent itself to this yeah. kind of figure, um, and that's what's being highlighted here is that is that Jesus is this, this figure who has taken on the uniqueness and the primacy – of course that's what the title Lord also suggests, points in the same kind of direction uh, – that highlights, uh, I think – Part of what the creed is after Mm -hmm. as it emphasizes the fact that we're dealing with someone on the creator side of the creator creature divide.
2: Absolutely. I
1: think that what we call high Christologies of the New
2: Testament, certainly John's prologue, uh, John 1 1 to 18, where he's even called the probably one and only, or monogonist theo, the mm-hmm. one and only God, mm-hmm. or the only begotten God, if you translate it in classical ways, who's made the Father known, who's on the bosom of the Father. This is extraordinary language, but he's created everything ever created. As you see in John 1 and Colossians 1, one starting with yes, verse 15, yep. and Hebrews 1, again, he's the creator of everything, and the sustainer, as in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Here's the one, this son, who is God in himself, but not to be confused with the Father, is the creator of everything and sustains it, everything invisible and visible in heaven and on earth and everywhere else. And finally, it is for
1: his glory, and yet he brings this back to the Father's glory as well. Okay, well, um, we, we, again, we could spend more time on this, but there's one other concept I want to get to before we're done. Uh, so it says, Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, really underscoring this divine aspect of who Jesus is. Begotten, not made – and now here comes the next mm. term that we've got to discuss – of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. So again – Consistently underscoring, this is the Creator we're talking about. When we say Jesus, we're thinking create. We're on the Creator side of things, but now we get to the issue of person as we talk about this. And the term essence yes. is an important term here. What's going on with that term?
2: We have uh, the whole idea of Trinity came out of the Son's relationship with the Father, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, so very clear all through the New Testament. And yet he's in personal relationship with the Father, and yet and yet even he says there's only one God. So how do we how do we put that together? The the Greek word is homoousios, the same substance or essence or the same nature. I like to say the godness of God. Mm-hmm. Both the Father and the Son share that. The Nicene Creed really frames a kind of mystery because mm-hmm. you have the oneness of God, one essence, and yet the three. Persons mm-hmm. and I would argue in relationship they they love each other they make each other known uh, they testify of one another they are in a sense self giving one to the other even within the Godhead so there is the one nature the Eastern Church tended to favor the Father from whom ever comes forth the equal existence of the Son and the Spirit the Western Church there are variations and a lot of mixture between the two even Calvin Tend to say, well, that would make the Son and the Spirit inferior to the Father, then, wouldn't it? They wouldn't be completely God as the Father is God. So that would be Aquinas, that would be to some extent Augustine, and even uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa questioned that himself. So within that framework of Nicaea, three persons, one essence, some prefer to emphasize the three persons in relationship. Others prefer to emphasize the one essence, manifest but in real persons, uh, uh, some kind of consubstantial uh, 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 manifestation each of the other, yet really distinct. Within this mystery of the Trinity
1: okay I'm gonna go for a kind of crass paraphrase here and see what you think of it and it, and it may need correction but basically this term essence means that they're 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 made of the one one stuff I mean That's uh, right. homo homoousia is a a, a a oneness of being, if you will, and mm-hmm. if you want to get really, really literal, so the one stuffness that is God is Father, Son, and Spirit, all existing simultaneously and and co um, uh, co co functioning. I don't know what other what other word to use. And it's a I'm, we're going. We deep. are. We're, we're <laughs> language doesn't doesn't take. And, us. and that's the point. I mean, there's a mystery to this that is real. That um, and yet at the same time, there's this threeness and this oneness that is simultaneously being affirmed that obviously is the core of this creed. But the same essence is a way of saying, look, this is the, this is the same stuff that the Father is. This, mm-hmm. is. this is divinity we're talking about. We're not talking about anything lesser or different. The distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit is a distinction of personhood, but it's not a distinction of stuffness, if I can. Yeah, very well said. Mm -hmm. I see, you know,
2: you look at the New Testament, you see Son and Father in that relationship that transcends time. Actually, it's that language of Son and Father that is the bridge right into the heart of the Trinity as this tri-personal God of love and holiness. So... As you look at scripture, even Gregory of Nazianzus talked about three gold coins. Mm -hmm. Each is completely God. But if that's all you had, you'd have tritheism. Mm -hmm. You also have the fact that each, without confusing the persons, each indwells the other. Mm -hmm. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The Spirit comes forth from the Son and from the Father. And yet beyond that, there's still the one essence that each shares completely. And so you have three tiers of, of oneness in all of this, and we cannot forget that one essence or substance in which each shares.
1: Well, uh, Scott, I really thank you for coming in and helping us uh, through this very uh, full part of the creed. The last thought I want to leave is kind of a devotional one, which is this, that um, that we have direct connections to this this one who has all this power and all this authority and uh, uh, and that the beauty of the relationship of the Trinity is the beauty of the relationship we also get to share with the one who's the creator God. So we leave on a note of worship. Mm -hmm. I thank you for coming in and we thank you for being a part of the table and we hope that this exposition of the Trinity has been helpful.